This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. According to the most recent data, 6.2 million Canadians live with a disability. We know that employment rates for Canadians of working age with disabilities are far below the national average. Many more rely on government transfers. It's not unusual for Canadians with disabilities to ask themselves tough financial questions. Rent or groceries? Subway tokens or medications? And there are also increased costs associated with living with a disability. After paying for medications, food or adaptive equipment, people with disabilities are often scraping by. But people with disabilities, like everyone, want to save for the future, for a rainy day, or moments of uncertainty. Today, we discuss differences in asset building amongst Canadians with disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, my name is Joita Gupta. I'm the host of the program. As you might be able to tell, we, that is to say I, as well as Sam, our technician, and Andrika, the stalwart producer of this program, are all working from home today. We are committed to making sure that you are informed and kept in the loop and that we fulfill our mission of providing information to you as blind and partially sighted Canadians. I want to remind you that this interview or let you know that this interview is taking place as a pre-recorded conversation between myself and my guest. It will air in a few days. And I hope you will excuse any ambient noise because it turns out that one of the perks of working from home is that you have in the background the constant groan and moan of construction. With all of that said, I hope that everyone is keeping well and that you're all doing well at this time of uncertainty. And one of the things that we really started to think about within the disability community is how moments like this really indicate what is working and what isn't working as effectively when it comes to some of our systems and institutions. And many of us with or without disabilities are hoping that we'll have a few assets or a cushion, something to help us at times of economic uncertainty. That's why I feel my conversation today is very much on point. My guest today is Dr. David Pednicchio, who is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. He co-authored a study with Michel Murodo from the University of Alberta about asset building amongst Canadians with disabilities. In February 2020, the study was published in the Canadian Review of Sociology and is called Barriers to Economic Security, Disability, Employment and Asset Disparities in Canada. Professor Pechenitio, uh, <laughs> David, welcome to the Pulse. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So uh, this is such an interesting time that we, we live in. First of all, how are you doing? Uh, well, I'm keeping up. I, uh, a lot of, uh, preparation had to go into sort of, uh, into making sure that, um, people don't get left behind in our, in, in the University of Toronto's transition from, um, in-person instruction to online instruction. 
but I think um, we're all making do with the resources we have. And uh, I guess the important thing is to, you know, try our best to get through this. Um, so it's definitely been uh, trying, <laughs> but I think we'll make it through. Yeah, take it one day at a time, right? Uh, David, I want to turn to your study uh, that looks at disparities in asset development and asset growth for Canadians living with disabilities. But first, let me ask you a question that I've been pondering. The words wealth and income, if you weren't an economist or a a, a sociologist, I suppose, you might be tempted to use them interchangeably. So is there a difference between the two words? Yeah, this is a very good question. And in fact, I would say that in, in this project, uh, I think there are three kind of major takeaways that are not specific to disability, but nonetheless, disability uh, kind of raises, makes these even more salient. And, and the first is exactly what you just noted, right? That there is an important difference between, for example, your weekly and monthly income from, for example, your job. Uh, than your wealth and assets, right? And so wealth and assets usually are accumulated. They don't always come from income from your job. So for example, if you save money and, and accumulate interest, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. building your assets. If you buy a house or a car or things like that, you're, you're building your assets that aren't, that, that isn't specifically your earned income. Of course, earned income mm-hmm. and wealth go together. But not all wealth is determined by your income from your job. So I think this is a really important point. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the related kind of messages or takeaways from this project is that we already know that in Canada, much like in other industrialized countries, you know, people who are already vulnerable, so people who have less education, uh, racial minorities, and even immigrant groups tend to have fewer assets than the majority, and they also have fewer opportunities to build assets. So how do you build assets, right? For example, having an employer pension plan. You know, I think something like only 40% of Canadians have an employer pension plan, Mm -hmm. having an RSP, and other financial products that help people, you know, build their wealth, right? And, 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 And generally people who are already in sort of in vulnerable groups don't tend to have the same kind of access. They also don't think they also don't tend to have the, that same kind of access to credit markets, right? So, mm-hmm. so we already know that, in fact, groups that are already traditionally disadvantaged in the labor market face these additional disadvantages even within credit markets. And, of course, this has, you know, consequences for, your, for someone's overall well-being. And that leads to this mm-hmm. issue of, well, what's the policy uh, implication, right? So from, from this mm-hmm. point of view, you know, what's, what's the underlying philosophy that shapes, you know, what we think are the ways to tackle inequality and poverty given these, given this kind of scenario, these, these scenarios? Mm-hmm. Well, it's so much to unpack just in what you've said here, David, but tell me about what motivated you to look at specifically the concerns around asset development for people with disabilities. Is this a topic that's gotten a lot of attention from researchers in the past, or are you something of a pioneer in taking it on for the very first time? Um, well, the question about motivation, I think, is really is really important. And um, I wouldn't say we were pioneers. I think there's a lot of factors that either you know encourage or limit people from trying to get at the uh, at this kind of question, for example, using data, right? So we, all of us who are interested in answering these kinds of questions sort of rely on the availability of data to do it. So, you know, my colleague and friend Michelle Morado and I have for many years now really been focusing on, on 
labor market outcomes among people with disabilities, right? And this is very important because a key finding in that research is that people with disabilities continue to have low employment rates or even underemployment rates. And and even though, even in a context where we have rights laws that are supposed to tackle that problem, right, as you mentioned in your, in your opening, right, this, this is, people with disabilities are a group that are very much disadvantaged in the labor market. And because when they do work, People with disabilities are they're occupationally, we say occupationally ghettoized. In other words, they're occupationally clustered into low-paying, often precarious jobs, usually not unionized jobs, with low income. And in fact, you know, evidence suggests that um, people with disabilities uh, are often overqualified for the jobs they do get. And that's probably because they have to try to overcome these myths and misperceptions among employers that you know, people with disabilities can't work or that they're unproductive. Or that, they, or that you know, they somehow increase the cost of of, this, of litigation. So that has always been. This is, this is a research question that we've been looking at for a long time. But it also happens that my colleague uh, Michelle uh, Morado is also an expert in specifically on wealth and debt. So we always had this in the back of our minds: this, this interest in exploring the relationship between wealth and income uh, among people with disabilities. So. I think two things lit a, fi- a fire for us to really get on this. The first was that a couple of years ago, uh, the Toronto Star uh, did, uh, had a, a piece on um, that, that really brought the issue, uh, it really made it like sort of a, a personable issue, an issue that by, by focusing on people who really walked the line between sort of getting, get, getting government benefits but stuck in a dead-end job, uh, leading people to have almost nothing left once they cover the cost of living, uh, well, this raises a lot of questions about, well, how do people like that build assets? I mean, building assets usually requires, yes, income, but you need a surplus at the end of, a, of the month, for example, to put away. Um, you need access and knowledge about financial products and credit markets to do that. So this really kind of caught our attention. And then or kind of around the same time, we became aware of this data set that is really interesting. It's called the Survey Financial Security, okay? And it includes individuals' information combined with tax data about a person's assets and debt. So this allowed us to really do a kind of the project that we did, right, which looks at people's non-housing financial assets, whether people have a monthly budget, whether they carried a credit card and balance, owned any stock, et cetera, right? So this became really useful to us to do a, a systematic analysis because our we ended up analyzing over 33,000 Canadians. Um, That's and, impressive. And so, this, so these two things together really helped bring the study forward. David, I really want to get into the findings of your survey. So after you had looked at all of this data, you talked about looking at 32,000 different entries. What conclusions did you draw? Yeah, so we were um, so we were very you know, fascinated by, by by what we ended up finding by analyzing this this data. And I mean, I think there's one key finding that I think everyone, we, readers or casual people who are interested in this topic, should should to know. And that is that there, what we found is both a direct link between households with a, a member with a disability and wealth, but also an indirect relationship between a household with disabilities and wealth through income. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So essentially, we found that even after we took into account a whole bunch of factors that are known to be associated with assets, so for example, education, uh, issues related, uh, factors related to the credit market, uh, family characteristics and households, and even a region 
Uh, we found that people with disabilities held in Canada 25% less in non-housing assets. So this shows that there's a direct uh, impact of having a, a household with a disability and um, household uh, and, and um, uh, um, uh, low assets. So this is a, an important finding. But common sense would tell us that income from a job intuitively, right, should have a positive effect on wealth. I mean, you, have, mm-hmm. you earn more money, you're more likely to have more money at the end of the month to put away. But what mm-hmm. we end up finding is that because disability is also negatively related to employment earnings, in other words, disability, there's a, a, a negative impact, right, of, being, of having a disability and your employment earnings for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that in fact, income in the case of disability actually makes the wealth gap worse. It actually mm-hmm. adds 5.9% to that 25%. So basically, you end up with a gap that's about 30% between people with and without disabilities. So this is really troubling, right? Because it, it points to both this direct implication of having a disability in, in our society, in Canada, and, mm-hmm. the, and, and, and the obstacles associated with, with creating a, a nest egg by having financial security, but also that, it, that because disability is is negatively impacted even in the labor market, right? You don't see an added gain from having employment. In fact, you see that the gap is increased because because of these labor market obstacles that people with disabilities face. So this is very troubling. You've mentioned a couple of times already about access to the credit market. And this is such an interesting idea that people with disabilities for numerous reasons are excluded from accessing the credit market. But isn't it also, David, something of a double-edged sword in that, yes, it might help with asset building and development, but surely we don't want people getting into more and more debt. I mean, this is a, this is a very good point as well, right? So, and, and of course, this is where, you know, a lot of a lot of people studying this talk about financial literacy, which you know is not entirely a, a, an issue that is only a result of individual level understandings, right? It's also a structural problem, right? How do people understand what kinds of products are available to basically take on, for example, good debt versus bad debt? Uh, so, of course, those are those are all issues here. But the but the idea is that you, you know, how do you access, for example, getting a loan to pay for something that's more immediate, like for example, let's say some a medical issue ha- takes place, or you need some sort of modification to your home, and how do you how do you pay for that without a loan? So, so, but of course, you're right to point out that you know we are not we're, we're not advocating that people should you know go out and get loans or anything like that. But the idea is that a lot of for, for people who really need to access money or or or, or you know or credit, it, it, it don't don't really have that. Um, uh, option. I mean, I mean, this is not unique to people with disabilities, but it, it's a, it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a, a problem. You know, we have a system that relies on access to credit markets and knowledge of savings, uh, you know, products that help households. This means that households with better access to both knowledge and these services and saving building programs and how to take and, and knowledge about how to take on good debt, for example, right. This great information leads to rewards, but for people who don't have that, right, they're sort of left out of that. They're left out of our system, um, and this is not an individual level problem. I think it's the, one of the takeaways from the paper, and actually we conclude with that, right? The norms around who does and who does not get credit tend to disadvantage, tend to um, hurt already disadvantaged or vulnerable groups, and that's that's important to bear in mind as well. Um, uh, 
and so and, and there are other important implications to to the study that sort of um, or that, that speak to these broader problems. Um, we have an existing programmatic or I guess you can call it a policy context. And I mean, I like to talk about it as couched in a kind of neoliberal ideology that people can talk about however they'd like. But basically, we have a means-tested system, uh, which in order to access benefits, you have to prove that you have a disability. Now, of course, this seems obvious, but sometimes even small definitional changes you know, can have an impact, um, not necessarily about whether you have or do not have a disability, but whether a government agency thinks you have a disability for the purposes of a the purposes of a specific program. So, and to qualify, there are also often asset limits. So many programs, right, you might, you might limit you in the kinds of income that you can get from a job and also the kinds of assets you can have. So per, kind of perversely, this discourages some individuals from saving or getting a slightly better paying job because then you'd lose those benefits and actually end up in a worse situation uh, than, when you, than when they had those low paying jobs with benefits from like, government benefits, right? So... Let me just stop you here for a moment, because I just want to understand this an issue a lot. I mean, we know that as many as 38% of Canadians with disabilities receive some form of government transfer. You've alluded to the fact that the government transfer plans across the board seem to have very strict requirements about how many assets you can have, how uh, how much money you can earn in a particular month before they start to claw back those benefits. How do we revise public policy so that it allows people with disabilities to work and earn a sufficient income but not lose those benefits? Do we need to raise the caps? Do we need to allow for more exemptions? Do we just need to raise disability rates across the board? Because the the, the payouts for people with disabilities haven't even, as far as I know, kept up with inflation. Yes. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a really good question. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm not an economist or, you know, an expert in this area, but clearly what needs to happen is that we need to revise these policies where, I mean, I don't know if it's a a matter of having exemptions or a matter of raising the asset threshold so that people can still have higher paying jobs and also accumulate some savings and still maintain government benefits, because I clearly think that 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 this is something that needs to happen. Just So just for example, right, right now we have things like the disability tax credit and the disability uh, registered savings plan, which it's kind of like an RSP, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that it's to, meant to encourage people with disabilities to save in this kind of registered account, right? But, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, in and of itself a bad idea, but there's a really important underlying assumption here about this and other kinds of policies like this, and that is that, well, you have to have money to save in order for these things to work, right? Mm-hmm. So these kinds of policies aren't addressing uh, for example, uh, the fact that you have no money left to, to put away or to put aside. So how does one actually take advantage of, of these kinds of programs? Um, these programs, um, I mean, we're not saying they're entirely useless, but they have so many constraints that they alone, if our, if our goal is to address economic inequality, asset inequality, and poverty, this alone is not going to do it. So this exclusive focus on a person's responsibility to save, which I think, or we think, and we allude to in our paper, is is, is, if this is the underlying philosophy here, we're not going to solve this problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is just not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. 
Let me move this conversation towards solutions then. If we don't make this solely about individual behavior and individual saving habits, what needs to change on the policy front so we can address the macro issues of the systemic barriers? I'm thinking about something like the universal basic income. Is that a way to lift people with disabilities out of poverty, but also try and reduce the scale of the, of the wealth gap that you alluded to earlier in our conversation? Yeah, this is a this is a, a good point. I, I think actually I think it is um, a, an important part of the solution. I don't think in and of itself would be enough. But you know, here's here's a way. To, I mean, just to put this into context, right? So we know that the for just thinking about younger people with disabilities who you know are entering the labor force, right? They have their lives ahead of them, right? This has important impacts for younger people because there are cumulative effects, right? And I think we all can appreciate what that means, right? We know that saving during our active years has a significant impact on wealth over time, right? So Mm -hmm. by limiting opportunities, whether in employment, right, through, uh, you know, even things like discrimination and and just not wanting to hire people with disabilities, right, limiting people from accessing financial products or or even things like appropriate vocational training. And by the way, that should be vocational training into sectors of the economy that are actually growing, not shrinking. Uh, Mm -hmm. Educational opportunities, Opportunities for building human capital, uh, addressing things like I mentioned, asset thresholds and, and, and means testing, dealing with cost mm-hmm. of living, for, and specifically for, for households with a disability, right? If we don't do this now for young people with disabilities, right, they will end up paying the price later on. And I think this is an important, this should not be forgotten, right? There are important cumulative, cumulative effects here. So I think that the solution to this problem is, yes, part of it is, financial and employment and uh, ways to facilitate wealth building or asset building. But the other is, you know, providing the kinds of opportunities, services, like vocational training and and things like that, that also support people with disabilities into getting into the labor market and even having important sort of courses or information about financial products, right, to make that as accessible and as you know, uh, readily understandable. I mean, for most of us, a lot of these financial products are very confusing and not that you know obvious for the for the you know just any old person. And so I think that we have a, I think a duty to to make these things accessible to everybody. And so I so I definitely think it's a multi pronged policy solution to address a problem as 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 structural as poverty and wealth inequality. David, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you about this. The time has flown by as it does when we're having fun. I just want to thank you for being on the program and for sharing your insights with all of us. And good luck to you moving forward. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was a great chatting with you, especially in these uh, unusual and trying times. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, David. Take care. That was Dr. David Petunikiu, who is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Sociology and who recently co-authored a paper that looked at disparities in building assets amongst Canadians with disabilities. It was a very fascinating read and I hope that you will tune into the podcast and catch some of the conversation that I just had with David if you would like to get caught up caught up on it as David mentioned we are living in some unusual and trying times i'm not going to lie to you I was quite stunned by the pace of change in our day-to-day lives, but I think it does open up the possibility to ask some deep and meaningful questions about what next. 
what in our lives as people with and without disabilities has been working and where can we make improvements? And of course, that becomes a particularly salient point when we think about this issue of asset development and growth, because it's often the people who are most vulnerable in any society, whether it's women, whether it's people with disabilities or immigrants, who would feel the shock of an economic upset. My hope is that as things evolve, we will start to take a sober second look at public policy and do many of the things that I think should have been done a long time ago. Evolve social assistance policies, improve access to credit markets for people with disabilities, and perhaps most importantly, improve employment outcomes and income levels for people with disabilities I am so optimistic that we can come together and make change. I would really like to remind you as well that as I process this interview with David, you can head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse, which is the show blog. It's a great way to keep in touch with all of us and to find out some of my thoughts and reflections on my conversation with David and some of my analysis of his report, which I read in its entirety last night. I would like to thank Dr. David Petonicio for being my guest today on the program. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks going out to the supervisor of AMI-audio technical, Paula Deneen, for making our remote broadcast possible. We would love to get your feedback on the program and stay in touch with us. You can write us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. And of course, you can also find us by email, write to feedback at AMI.ca and also give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. Everyone, be safe, be well, and try to make the most of the situation. This too shall pass. And until next time, you have been listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Have a wonderful day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.